it's going to be a real blessing to hear from Dr. Ware. When I introduced him on Monday, I didn't have any notes in front of me, so I, I wrote some things down. So let, let, let me, uh, I get a second chance at this. So, so Dr. Ware and his wife, Jody. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. He's a gracious man. My wife, Katie, and I have known Bruce and Jody for uh, 10 years or so. He was one of my professors and pastors when I was a student at Southern Seminary a while back. And we just uh, are so thankful for their ministry, not just in the classroom, but in the church, in their home. Just They are the real deal. They love people. Uh, Bruce is a, a godly pastor, professor, father. And so we're so thankful to have him out here. He's been the professor, professor of Christian theology since 1998 at Southern. He's also taught at Trinity at um, Bethel Seminary and at Western Seminary. He's written a number of books that are all worth checking out. Um, Big Truths for Young Hearts, I want to highlight in particular. It's a great book for parents, for children, for middle age, for, you know. He's wrote, wrote a book called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Relationships, Roles, and Relevance, a great reflection on the Trinity, and he's been sharing a lot of that with us this week. And I think this is his most recent book, uh, The Man, Christ Jesus, Theological Reflections on the Humanity of Christ, which uh, we're going to get a little taste of that. He's going to prime the pump for that book, but I want to encourage all of you to check that book out. After what you hear from him this afternoon, I'm sure you'll want to get it, but uh, it's just a real privilege to welcome Bruce Ware, to hear from him, to hear his heart, and to... uh, just hear what God has shown him that he can teach us. So let's welcome Dr. Bruce Ware. Well, great to have all of you here. And uh, thank you for the privilege, Chris. Thank you for inviting me out. It's really a delight. They brought my wife, too. How kind. She's, uh, she's having fun while I'm working, you know. Although she's going to work tonight. She's meeting with uh, women uh, at Chris... Chris and Katie's home uh, with a gr- group of women from your church, I guess, right from, from Harbor. So anyway, uh, she'll be on tonight, and she's a blessing to me, and, and she does a lot of uh, mentoring and speaking at women's conferences and the like, so it's, uh, I'm glad for her ministry here as well. But uh, it's great to just, you know, be a part of what's happening here and to see, see what the Lord is doing in uh, cultivating this nurturing of uh, friendships and relationships and growing uh, in a common sense of, uh, of the gospel and, uh, and the centrality of Christ and, you know, and, and, the, and the importance of theology. Boy, that, I, I don't know, so many churches out there are just so weak because they think that ministry is all about pragmatics and they don't realize that what our souls crave for is food, food uh, that, that is the, the substance of theology and the, the biblical teaching on things. That's what we need that strengthens us. And uh, so I praise the Lord that this group will, will help, uh, help do that. Well, in the time we have t- this afternoon, I want to uh, honor what Chris has asked me to do, which I'm very happy to do, and that's focus attention a bit on uh, the humanity of Christ and think with you about a few things that I talk about in my book, The Man Christ Jesus. These are things, I'll have to tell you, that... Um, have been, I mean, truths that I now embrace, that I now see and embrace, that have been for me a bit of a surprise because I didn't learn this growing up. I grew up in a Christian home 
in, in a Baptist church. And uh, I just was not raised to think this way. Uh, that's true in a lot of areas as well, though. But anyway, it's true here. And, uh, and when I came to see these things in the first place, it was kind of a shock. I just, really, could this be? And uh, what, what, led me, what led me to the study, what really were some questions that kept plaguing me uh, as a Christian, that finally the Lord opened my eyes to begin seeing some things about Christ that answered those questions in ways that surprised me. But it is a lesson, by the way, that questions are often the means God uses to open up an opening in what otherwise is a block wall that you can't see through. And sometimes the opening is really tiny, but it's enough to see there's a reality out there, you know. You can't tell yet what it is, but there is something out there that you that the Lord in his mercy just helps, uh, helps us see more clearly. And this happened with me. So here are two questions that I had that I just, I just didn't know the answer to. And the uh, first one was this. this. This question actually goes back to when I was about 12 years old, 12 or 13 years old. I was sitting on my bed uh, in my basement bedroom at home reading my Bible. My pastor said we should read the Bible more, so I was trying to do that. And I was reading in First Peter where it said that we're called for this purpose since Christ suffered for us that we are called to follow in his steps. Okay, I, I understood that, to look at Jesus and live like him follow in his steps, who committed no sin. I remember dropping my Bible on my lap, looking up and saying, that's not fair. I mean, Jesus is God and I'm not. So how, how, can, how can I be called, how can we be called to live like Jesus, to follow in his steps when he lived as God and we're not? I, I, I can't see this. I can't understand how, how that could be just for God to call us to do that. Second question was this. Uh, I, I began noticing as I worked in Christologies, as working, that there was this emphasis both, both in Old Testament and New of the Spirit upon Jesus. And uh, as I thought about that, this question just plagued me. What is the point of Jesus having the Spirit upon him when he already is fully God. What can the Spirit of God add to the deity of Christ? And of course, there is an answer to that question. What can the Spirit of God add to the deity of Christ? Nothing, because the deity of Christ is infinitely full. So it just looks to me like, yeah, I see it in the Bible. I see the, the prophecies that speak of Christ coming with the Spirit. I see Luke's emphasis on the Spirit upon Jesus, I see that, but I don't get why. That just makes no sense. It looks totally superfluous to me. I mean, he's God. You can't add to God. So what's the point of the Spirit on Jesus? Well, the resolution finally came to me a number of years ago when the Lord opened my eyes to see the answer to both questions was the same, had the same reality. And that is that Jesus, though he was the God-man, he is fully God, fully man, still is to this day. Though that was the case as he lived his life, he lived his life out of his humanity fundamentally, not his deity. So he, he needed to have the spirit upon him uh, to enable him to grow in all the ways he needed to grow to accomplish the mission he was called to accomplish as the second Adam, as the son of David. 
as the seed of Abraham, as this man who would live among us, the life we were called to live, the life Adam was called to live, but failed to live, he would live it perfectly as a man in the power of the Spirit. So then I went, went back and looked at those two questions again, you know. First one, how can it be just for God to call us to follow in his steps, to, to live like Jesus when he was the God-man and we're not? Answer, he lived his life as a man with resources now given to us. The same resources he had are given then to us to, to live as he lived. So that's the first one. So second question, what's, what's the, why the emphasis of Jesus in the power of the Spirit when he's the God-man? What can the Spirit of God add to the deity of Christ? Well, the answer is nothing, but how about this question? What can the Spirit of God add to the humanity of Christ? Oh my, everything supernatural, everything to enable this man to live the life that he was called to live. So I, I think that this, this way of understanding Jesus as one of us, a man genuinely living his life as a man, accepting the limitations, this is from Philippians 2, the limitations of the expression of attributes of his divine nature so that when he takes on our humanity, he experiences day by day by day what it means to grow as a boy into manhood, to grow in wisdom, Luke 2, verses 40 and 52, to be instructed by the Spirit, Isaiah 11. In fact, look, look at that text with me. I just want you to see this amazing statement from the prophet Isaiah of the coming of Christ and, and the relation of the Spirit to him. Isaiah 11. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse is who? My class knows this because we talked about it. Jesse is David's father. So this is a, this is a, uh, a passage that has in mind 2 Samuel 7 where God promised to David he would have a son who would be upon his throne forever. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, David's father. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So two questions. Number one, did Jesus exhibit wisdom during his life and ministry as he interacted with people? Is it clear to you that he was wise in how he dealt with people? Yes, absolutely. You, you think of Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, the Pharisees, just so many examples. Yes, he exhibited wisdom. Second question, according to Isaiah 11 verse 2, how did he have such wisdom? The spirit upon him. So notice this is not automatic for him. He doesn't just know things because he's God. He learns things. The Spirit illumines his mind. He grows in wisdom, as I mentioned from Luke 2, chapter, verses 40 and 52. Certain things he doesn't know, right? He doesn't know the hour of the second coming. Uh, only, only the Father knows that, not the angels, not even the Son of Man. Only the, uh, he, 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 he's not taught everything. The Spirit is the one who governs what the Son knows, and he grows in that understanding through his life. So his, his obedience then is an obedience that isn't automatic. His resisting of temptation is, is through a, a, a power that is not automatic. 
It, it, in all of the ways he lived, he lived as one of us in the power of the Spirit, and, and he did so, even his miracles, more on that in just a moment, the miracles that he performed in the power of the Spirit in accomplishing everything that the Father called him to do as a man in the power of the Spirit. Now, he was God. There's no doubt about that. And there are times when his deity is shown. For example, in Mark 2, when the paralytic is dropped down in front of him, and, uh, and he says, instead of you're healed, he says, your sins are forgiven. Those around him, the Pharisees there, say, who could forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. You're right. I mean, that's exactly right. He is God and has that divine authority that only God has to forgive sin. But for the most part, that, that's why I use the word fundamentally. He fundamentally lives his life as a man in the power of the Spirit, although he is God, and there are times when that is appropriately manifest. But he, he does all that he is called to do as a man with resources, we have also. Wow, that is just a phenomenal idea. Now, even miracles, let me just take a moment on that. Look with me at two passages, Acts 2, verse 22. This is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. He has just quoted from Joel 2 about the coming of the Spirit that has taken place on the day of Pentecost. And now he begins to move his servant toward Christ who sent the Spirit. So that, that's the direction that the, 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 the uh, sermon is going. So this Christ who died and was raised is at the right hand of the Father and sent the Spirit. That's where this is going. But here's his introduction to Jesus in verse 22. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man, notice the emphasis there. Let me stop. Is Peter aware of the fact that Jesus is also God? Absolutely. He worshipped Jesus. Uh, he, he, uh, he, he knew the prophecies of the Old Testament that the God-man would come. Uh, he was present on that day after the resurrection of Christ when Jesus appeared before the disciples with Thomas and, and showing Thomas that he was alive. See, come here, touch my side, my hands. Be not unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas declared, my Lord and my God. Peter was there. Now, Peter knows he's God. But if you ask Peter the question, how did he live his life? How, how did he accomplish the work the Father gave him to do? Here it is. A man, a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Now, we read over that real quickly and don't get it, you know? So, so read it slowly and get it. Namely, this is the human Jesus, that God worked in him and through him to perform these miracles, these signs, these wonders, that here he says God. Now, look at the next passage where he, it's clear this is the Spirit, Acts 10, 38. Acts 10, 38 where this is Peter again, now to Cornelius, uh, who, to whom he is about to preach the gospel. But again, he gives an introductory statement of the life and ministry of Jesus in verse 38. Acts 10, Peter to, Cornel, to Cornelius says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, 
and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So who was this Jesus? A man appointed by God and anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. And notice the categories that he mentions here in this verse. God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good, the moral life of Christ, the obedience of Christ, the, the, the compassion, the kindness, the, the doing goodness of Christ, okay? So that's a large category of fulfilling the law and doing what was right and, and, and showing compassion to others. He went about doing good and healing all who are oppressed by the devil, the miracles of Christ, his, his ability to cast out demons and bring healing to people and, and, and accomplish these miracles. So it, so it really does fit what Peter said in Acts 2.22, signs and wonders, miracles performed through him. So, so what power does Peter say Jesus had by which he did good and healed all who were oppressed by the devil? The Spirit. Now here, my friends, is one of the kickers on this is the parallel language between Acts 10.38 and Acts 1.8. So Acts 10.38, you've heard of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. Acts 1.8, wait in Jerusalem for what the Father promised. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So, oh, my friends, this is just an amazing thing when you realize we are called to live like Christ. And that call is legitimate. That, that command is justified because what we need to live lives of obedience, to live lives in which we resist temptation and grow in holiness, lives in which we are called to fulfill the mission God gives us to do, which is not gonna be the same mission uh, and that Christ, that God called Christ to do. I mean, they're obviously they dovetail, but it's not the same mission. You're not dying on the cross for sinners, are you? No. So the, the, the mission God called you to do is will be accomplished with the same resources, same empowerment Jesus had. This is why he says at the end of his life, before he goes back to the Father, he tells his disciples in John 16, look at this with me. John 16, he says at verse 5, but now I'm going to him who sent me. Of course, he began introducing that concept back in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. And they're going, what? what, what, what what's this talk about leaving? What's this talk about going somewhere else? I mean, we've been waiting for the Messiah to come for hundreds of years. You're him, right? Yes. Well, then stay, you know, Goodness, build the kingdom, all these things that the Old Testament talks about, we're expecting you to do. But no, Jesus is talking about leaving, and they're just dumbfounded by this. So he says, verse 5, now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where you are going. Where, where are you going? It's as though, I mean, the normal way a conversation would take place would be this. If I were talking with you after our time today, and I say, we're, we're going on a little trip this afternoon, you would say, oh, where, where are you heading, you know? What, what part of the island are you going to? Uh, well, that would be the normal way to talk if you're just in normal conversation. So Jesus has said, I'm leaving, and none of them can 
act normally toward him. They can't respond in normal ways because they are so shocked by what he is saying. So here he goes on to say, but because I have said these these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage. Let those words sink in. It is to your advantage that I go away. I mean, that's just startling, is it not? How could it be to the advantage of these disciples that he leave them? They've been waiting hundreds of years for him to come. He's Messiah. I mean, to have him stay is is obviously the, the best thing that could happen. Oh, no, says Jesus. It is to your advantage. It's better for you that I'm leaving. Why? Here's his answer. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. The same spirit who was upon Jesus sent to us so that we might live the lives he calls us to live with the same empowerment he had. Amazing, isn't it? So what could be better than having Jesus walk by our side? Answer, having the spirit of Jesus live and work uh, within our very lives. That's the better. That's the advantage for which he leaves. Okay, so that's kind of the the big picture, you know, in terms of uh, this view of Christ that I have come to. uh, Sometimes... uh, uh, I share this with people and they just are shocked by it because they've never heard this before. And I think, I think, it's, I think it's because, um, I mean, I didn't know it either as, as I testify to you. I think it's because in our evangelical circles, we have had so regularly to defend the deity of Christ against objectors, the Jehovah's Witnesses or the whoever's that are out there, that this has resulted in a evangelical mind, as it were, that when we think of Christ, we think God. And of course, he is God. But when we think of Christ and we look at the Christ of the Gospels, we ought to think primarily or fundamentally man, man empowered by the Spirit to accomplish the work the Father gave him to do. And when we see that, we realize that same empowerment that Jesus had is given to us. It it just elevates the significance of Pentecost, does it not? You just realize, wow, what a gift God has given us in this spirit who has come to work in us with the power that he did to work in Jesus. Okay, now let let me just pause right there because I'm going to take this in another track, another direction from this point right here. Let me see if any of you have any comments or questions you want to make in in terms of kind of the the template that I've laid out in front of you, the, the main idea of Jesus living his life and the power of the Spirit and that empowerment given to us as we receive the Spirit. Any, any questions come to mind, co- comments you want to make? Any, any of you, particularly Gospel Coalition friends who have come? Yes, please. Ah, that's where I'm going with this next. Okay, so yeah, hey, hang on. That's, that's the extension we're coming to. Th- thank you, good question though. Yes, please. Yeah. <clears throat> mhm. 
No, 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 not, not quite, not quite right. Uh, to have sinned. Yes. All right. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. Just, just real briefly. Um, uh, the church has held, for the most part, through the centuries, a doctrine called the impeccability of Christ, which asserts that Christ not only did not sin, which is clear from Scripture, and we all agree on, there's no, no controversy on that point, at least among Bible-believing Christians, uh, not only that he did not sin, but he could not sin. And the main reason for thinking this, I hold impeccability also, the main reason for thinking so is because he was fully God as well as fully man, and it is impossible for me to imagine him sinning. Of course, he didn't, but hypothetically, it's impossible to imagine him sinning without that implicating the divine nature. But God cannot sin. Therefore, I think because he is the God-man, he cannot sin. Well, that, you know, that is a, I mean, just on the surface, that is a troubling or problematic conclusion because he was truly tempted. So the question then becomes, how can you account for the genuineness and the authenticity of the temptations of Christ if, in fact, he never could have sinned as a result of those temptations? So my proposal, that, that uh, I, I, this is in the book as well. I, I uh, discuss it in there. My proposal is that we distinguish between why it is Christ could not sin. What's the answer there? He's God. He's the God man. Because he's God, cannot sin. Distinguish between why he could not sin with why he did not sin. And those two questions require two different answers that are remarkably unrelated to each other. That, that is, there's no connection between the two questions and answers. He, did, he could not sin because he's God. He did not sin not by appeal to his deity not by default, as it were, just, just to his deity. Of course, I cannot sin. But rather, he did not sin as he fought temptations out of his humanity in the power of the Spirit with the resources that were given to him. And so he never appealed to his deity. He, it was always completely accomplished through his humanity in resisting temptation through the Spirit, through the Word, through prayer, uh, through, through his life of devotion to the ways of the Father. He, he resisted temptation all the way to the end as a man in the power of the Spirit. And, and so is for us uh, as well an example for how we should live in resisting temptation. Likewise, by having the word saturate our minds, by, by praying fervently that God would sustain us during times of temptation, uh, that the Spirit would work within us and rely upon that spirit to provide empowerment for, for resistance that we do not have in ourselves. So Jesus is indeed uh, the, the, uh, uh, the example there as well in resisting temptation. Uh, there's more I could say, but I think, that's, I think that's all I'll say on that point. But thank you, that's a very, very good question and I appreciate you bringing it up. Anything else, uh, especially Gospel Coalition friends who are here, any, any comment, question? Okay, well, here, here's what I wanted to do, take it forward. Our friend here uh, kind of indicated a way I think would be very helpful to, to advance this a bit further. And that is to say, uh, what was your word? Limitations. Are, are, is there any way we need to 
to qualify uh, the statement, we are called to, to follow Jesus' example uh, with the same empowerment that he had. Are there any qualifications to that? And I think there are two areas where qualifications need to be made uh, lest, lest we end up in error on one or the other side of this, okay? That on each of these could, could really be problematic. Uh, one of them is this, is we could end up with a perfectionist theology, right? So follow in his steps who committed no sin. Okay, Bruce, you can follow in his steps and never commit sin. Ah, this I think would be a horrible mistake. That, that is a mistaken application of the principle of... of uh, Jesus living his life in the power of the Spirit, he's an example for how we should live. And here's the problem with drawing that conclusion that sinless perfection is possible also for us, is that it fails to take into account other biblical teaching, in fact, a lot of other biblical teaching that relates to the ongoing reality of the flesh within us as Christians, that wars against our souls. Do you remember that phrase in 1 Peter 2.11? Goodness, that, you know, there is this battle that we face. Galatians 5, the flesh wars against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. This battle that goes on every day in our lives because of on, the ongoing presence of sin within us as believers. And that's not going to be removed until we are with Christ. When we see him, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Glory be. What a great and hopeful truth that is, but that's not now. So th there has to be, boy, how do we do this? There has to be a qualification where we do not expect perfection, but we do expect consistent growth. So in other words, if, if you don't have this theology that we're given the, the Spirit's empowerment uh, to, to, you know, live like Jesus lived, to resist temptation, to obey the Father. If you don't have that, then you can fall off the other side of this, right? And be a defeatist. Not a perfectionist, a defeatist. And you just say, oh, you know what? We're just going to sin. It's just going to be sin, 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 you know, from, from here until we get to heaven. And, and there's no point in trying to do anything about it because it's just, that's just the way it is. No. I mean, you don't want to be a defeatist. Goodness, we, we want to have hope and confidence and, and realistic um, expectation of genuineness of growth in our holiness, growth in godliness as the Spirit works within us. By the way, the Holy Spirit is referred to as Holy Spirit three times in the Old Testament. Guess how many times in the New Testament? 94. Huh, why, why do you suppose the emphasis on Holy Spirit when he's given at Pentecost. This is my main, the answer to this question is my main complaint against Pentecostalism. It's not any great disagreement or disagreement over continuationism, cessationism, any of that. The, my main complaint is they missed the main point of the coming of the Spirit. It is not empowerment for gifting. It is not supernatural display of gifting. The main purpose of the coming of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, is to make the people of God holy. Surprise. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> 
yeah, indeed, this is why he has come most fundamentally. I will put my spirit within you, Ezekiel 36, 28. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will be careful to observe my ordinances. So the spirit has come to make us a holy people. So let's not be defeatist. That, that's where this teaching needs to be heard in our churches. We, 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 need to, we need to celebrate the gift of Pentecost, the spirit that was on Jesus given to us and have higher expectation, at least for the most part, for most people, than we have had and higher diligence and seeking after what God has now given us empowerment to see succeed in increasing measure. But will that ever bring us to the point of Christian perfectionism? No. I mean, Wesley was wrong. That's another story, isn't it? Wesley was wrong about this. You know, Wesley's view was that the reformers were correct on justification by faith. They just missed that also sanctification is by faith. They just need to extend the reformers' teaching of justification by faith to also sanctification by faith. So right now, you can believe and sin and its root is removed. That's a quote from Wesley. Every thought, temper, attitude, action, motivated by nothing but pure love for God and others. Quote from Wesley. Well, boy, all I can say is I wish it were true. You know, but it just is not true. Sin and its root is not removed until we see Christ. And, and, you know, Wesley at one point says, you know, even if I'm wrong about this, what harm does it take? You know, what, what harm does it do to encourage people to believe this? The harm is it doesn't happen, you know? And so they build up these expectations and they, they go, it hasn't happened. Maybe I'm not even a Christian. What's wrong with me? So that perfectionist ideal out there is not the biblical norm. It's not, it's not what the Bible says will happen in this life. So we have got to balance somehow the, the glorious teaching of empowerment for holiness with the realism of ongoing sin in our lives, ongoing flesh that wars against the spirit. And, and, and realize, my friends, we are going to fail. I mean, so don't be surprised if later today, you know, you, you sin in a, in a way in which you look up to God and say, I am so sorry. There, there it is again. There I did it again. You know, we, we all fail. We all stumble in many ways, James says. And so we do, and so we will. But on the other hand, you don't want to sin and be cavalier about it. You know, it's just the way it's going to be. No, because, wow, you realize among the things that you bring to mind when you do sin is, but the Spirit is here. The Spirit gives me empowerment I didn't have before, and I, by God's grace, need, need to be in the Word in a way that the Spirit can use so that my tendencies towards sin can be overcome in increasing measure. Avoiding perfectionism, certainly avoiding defeatism, and, and having this path down the middle of, of joyful confidence, of growth in holiness by the power of the Spirit. I think that's, that's where we need to be. Which is a significant qualification, isn't it? And, and one, one I think we have, have to really come to terms with, you know, that uh, uh, we, we err if we are overly optimistic 
on the perfectionist side. We err if we are, are, are pessimistic uh, on the defeatist side. And there is this balanced position in the middle there where it seems the Bible wants us to be. And it really does want us to be there. It really does. I mean, Paul is distressed, is he not, with believers that he writes to that they just have not made progress. It, it, it ought not be, my friends. It ought not be that we are not making progress. You know, and another piece of this is there is a version of gospel grace teaching out there today that really denies progressive sanctification. And I think it is just terribly misleading. You know, that you, all you do in your Christian life is look back to your justification, you know, and there's really no progress in terms of sanctification. Just look back to your justification. And, I, I, you know, we do look back to our justification. We are grateful for that. But you know what? Paul is constantly encouraging us to move forward, to grow in this. I mean, even, even, even to the Thessalonians, who are not the Corinthians, you know, the Corinthians, goodness, had tons of problems. The Thessalonians are in pretty good shape. You know, he has nothing but positive things to commend them. But look at what he says in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord. This is, yeah, 1 Thessalonians 4.1, that as you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God just as you do walk. So they're doing well. Okay, then he says that you excel more. Huh. So here, here is this pushing forward in growth in ways in which we improve. Same thing down in verse 10. I'll read verses 9 and 10. So as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, excel still more. So let's not think that grace, the grace that comes to us in the gospel is a grace that merely, and by, by that word, I don't mean to minimize how glorious this truth is, but it not merely exclusively deals with the guilt of our sin. It is also the same grace that gives us power to conquer the, 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 uh, the demon within, as it were, the flesh within, to see that flesh squelched in increasing measure through, through our lives, uh, trust in Christ and reliance upon the Spirit. Okay, so that, that's the first major qualification that I, I think needs to be made. And we too are called to live life in the power of the Spirit as Christ lived. We've got to remember, uh, we, we live this side of the eschaton, we're the already not yet, we're in the already not the not yet, and, and we have this problem of the flesh that is real, and, and fa factors in here. Okay, here's the second thing that, that is a totally different issue, uh, really. But another way that people could take this teaching, Christ lived his life in the power of the Spirit, accomplished all that the Father gave him to do in the power of the Spirit. We're now given the Spirit. We're, we're to live like Christ. Ah, that means all of the miracles and the supernatural work of Christ is what ought to be done through us too. We have the same Spirit. So we ought to raise the dead. Uh, we, we, we ought to heal the sick. We ought to cast out the demons. And all, all the things that you see Jesus doing, isn't this John Wimber? You know John Wimber's test? He's, he's dead now, but, you know, Vineyard Movement. Uh, John Wimber, he, he, see, I was at Fuller Seminary, 
as a student in my PhD program when John Wimber did his Signs, Wonders, and Church Growth class with C. Peter Wagner and Chuck Kraft. Uh, Jody, my wife, was secretary for Peter Wagner and Chuck Kraft during those days. Wow, that was interesting. But, you know, so here, so Peter Wagner does, I'm sorry, under the guise of Peter Wagner, John Wimber did this course of miracles and healings and all this stuff that, that was supposed to take place. Uh, in any case, uh, you know, a, a lot of it was, uh, was hype. Uh, no doubt some was real. But in any case, I, so I, I have a feel for what that was at the time. John Wimber, I heard his testimony that, you know, when he began reading the Gospels and, and went to church, he just would say to people at church, where's the stuff? Where's the stuff? And what stuff he had in mind was the miracles. I mean, goodness, if Jesus did these miracles, we should do them too. What's wrong with that thinking? Well, here's what's wrong with it is that it fails to recognize the uniqueness of the mission of Christ, the Messiah, who performed miracles in part, in significant part, as vindication, as demonstration of his identity as the Spirit-anointed Messiah. Let me give you, give you some support for that that notion that the the miracles of Jesus are in significant measure tied to to, to proving, vindicating his identity as the Messiah. Matthew 12, here's a case in point. Matthew 12, where Jesus casts out a demon and heals this boy and a remarkable miracle has taken place, so remarkable that the Pharisees and others who are there cannot dispute it. I mean, they don't say, oh, he's a charlatan. He's a magician. You know, no miracle really happened here. They can't do that. Goodness, they, they know it did. They, they know the people know that. So they come up with another explanation. If it was supernatural in origin, what's the other option? Satan did it, right? So he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And Jesus responds to that interpretation of his work uh, with three responses. The third one of which is in verse 28, Matthew 12, 28, where he says, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay. Now notice, first of all, the most basic thing is he attributes the power by which he did this to the spirit, right? He doesn't say, if I do this by my divine authority and power, but if I do this by the spirit. Okay, but it's the second part of the verse that I want you to think about with me. If I do this by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come. What's the connection? How how should they know that the kingdom of God has come because he has cast out this demon by the Spirit? Answer? Anybody? How should they know the kingdom of God has come because the means by which he cast out this demon was the power of the Spirit? Isaiah 11, Isaiah, okay, so when the, when the Messiah comes, he will have the spirit upon him, and that spirit will enable him to perform miracles, right? Here's the point, it, good, if, I, if I do this by the spirit, then guess who I am? It's, so it's really this, this is not so much about kingdom first and foremost, the kingdom of God has come upon you, it's more king, right? That the emphasis is that who must I be? 
I must be the king who has brought in the kingdom. And sorry to say, you're against me. <laughs> that, that's, you know, the, the sad news for the, the Pharisees at the time. So it, it is the vindication of him as king of Israel who will come in the power of the spirit that is demonstrated by the miracle performed. Um, interestingly, I don't know how much to make of this, but, but it's just true. It, it's just, you know, it's just true that, that the last king of Israel who is said to have the spirit is fill in the blank for me. In the Old Testament, who's the, the last king of, of Israel or Judah? Of course, you wouldn't expect any of the kings of the northern kingdom to have the spirit anyway, right? Because they were all evil. Every one of them did evil in the sight of the Lord. But what about the southern kingdom? You've you got a Hezekiah, Josiah. You've, you've got some good kings, Uzziah. You've got some good kings. Who's the last king of Judah for whom it says the spirit of the Lord was upon them? Do you know what the answer is? David. So here's my hunch, is that the next David who comes will have the spirit. Until then, uh-uh. Nope. But when David comes, he'll have the spirit. So here comes Jesus. If I cast out demons by the spirit, guess who I am? Guess what I've brought? Kingdom. Here's another example. John the Baptist from prison sends disciples to ask Jesus, are you the anointed one or shall we look for another? This is in Matthew 11. Matthew 11, beginning part of the chapter. And uh, of course, the, the reason for all of that is, we talked about this in our class recently, uh, the reason for all of that is, is because John the Baptist has read his Old Testament very well. He knows it <laughs> extremely well and he knows that the promises of Messiah coming indicate that when the Messiah comes, what will he do? Bring in righteousness, vanquish the enemies of Israel, reign as king, where? In Jerusalem. Well, if so happens, Herod, a wicked, adulterous king, is king of, in Jerusalem, who threw him, the forerunner of Messiah, into prison. What's wrong with this picture? Right? You see, you see, can you imagine the angst of John the Baptist in formulating that question and sending his disciples to go ask Jesus? Unbelievable. So, are you the anointed one or shall we look for another? Jesus' response, do you remember what he says? Go tell John what you see and hear. The blind see, the lame walk, the uh, the, the, the lepers are cleansed. The poor have the gospel preached. What's the point to John? Prophecies of the coming Messiah, which prophecies point especially to what? Miracles are being done. Are being done. Now, in a similar way, I think this carries forward to the apostles as well. That is, not only... Should we not have the conception we should do everything Christ did because we have the same empowerment he had? We should also not, not do this with the apostles because signs of an apostle were done among you. In other words, there's a similar kind of miracle vindicating work that happened with them as well. So all that to say is I think it would be a horrendous mistake to think that because we have the same spirit who was upon Jesus, we should do the same works that Jesus did. 
because his works have to be understood in terms of his mission, his calling, his identity. Some of which will not be done by us. Others of it will be. For example, you will be my witnesses. So you go out and you proclaim the gospel I've been proclaiming and, 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 and I will be with you until the end of the age. So this, this will be the ongoing work of the Messiah through you by the power of the Spirit. That continues. Uh, li- living in obedience, following his steps, who committed no sin. Living in obedience continues. Growing in that as we've talked about. But not necessarily particular acts of miracle, signs, wonders that are particularly applied to the Messiah and to the apostles, I think is arguable as well. Now, does that mean we should never expect any miracles to happen? Well, of course not. Don't press it that far. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you can't just take the whole thing and say that should be true of us. Now, it may be that that God would work by his spirit to enable one of you to, to cast out a demon or, or one of you to, to uh, you know, a, a miracle of some kind that might, be, might happen in, in through, through your life as well. That certainly could be. I mean, goodness, we don't want to restrict God either on this, do we? I mean, he can do whatever he wants to do. And if he chose to do that through the same spirit empowerment Jesus had, so be it. Wonderful. Praise be to God. But it's just that we should not see that as our expectation, and certainly not as the primary focus of what it means for us now to be followers of Christ who also have the Spirit. That should not be the primary focus. As I think happened a, a bit with John Wimber. I think what happened with him what was a primary focus in those signs and wonders as a means of church growth and uh, and that, 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 mis- that was a mistake because of the unique place that these miracles played in vindicating the identity of Jesus. Okay, so two qualifications. Do, do you, I mean, they're, they're very different, but they're both very important, I think, you know, in terms of thinking through this. Um, and uh, well, let me make, make one more comment, and then we can talk uh, if you want, want to discuss a bit together. Uh, the final comment is this. I just would encourage you not to let qualifications ever on this or other things, you know, other areas of doctrine, don't let the qualifications end up minimizing or reducing the, the, the beauty and the luster and the glory of the truth that was qualified, right? So the truth that, yes, it needs qualification, but the truth is still there. We are given the same spirit who is upon Jesus, This is the new covenant age where God writes the law on our hearts, not on tablets of stone, where he uses the spirit who indwells us, not corporately among the people. That's what it was in the Old Testament. Read Isaiah 63, 10 and 11. This Holy Spirit in the midst of you. The Holy Spirit was not internally indwelling Old Testament believers. We have that empowerment by the way, I just, I'm thinking some of you right there might get hung up. They didn't have the spirit too? No, they didn't. Here's the clearest evidence, I think, biblically for that. It's John 7, 39, where in verse 38, Jesus had just spoken on the last day of the great feast, out of your innermost beings will flow rivers of living water. Now, here's John's commentary 
wouldn't you love to have inspired verse, inspired commentary, inspired verse, inspired commentary. Wow, that would be nice. Well, here's, a, here's an inspired commentary. This Jesus spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed, past tense, in him were to receive, future, but they had not received him yet. Why? Because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Remember Jesus, Acts 2.33, Peter says, Jesus, having ascended to the right hand of the Father, having received from the Father the gift of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth that which you both see and hear. So until Christ is back with the Father, the Spirit doesn't come. And when he comes, he comes on all people, Joel 2. Your sons and daughters, your old men or young men, he comes on all who believe in Christ. What a glorious thing. So we're in this new covenant reality, my friends. Let, let's just... Wow, meditate upon that, prayerfully ask God to work in our hearts so that what the Spirit has come to do, to make us more like Christ, to make us holy, to give us empowerment to overcome, yes, even tough, resilient areas of sin in our lives. Let's trust God is greater. His Spirit can do it. And by, by, his, by the grace of God, through the work, work of his word and spirit, grow in Christ-likeness in ways that we could not do had the spirit not come. Amen? Amen. Okay. Questions. We'll, we'll open it up now to, to see if you have anything sparked, any thoughts, comments, questions. Yes, please, Brian. Yes. That's right. Right. Right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Great. Good. Thank you, Ryan. Let, let me just, I mean, one, one thing you said, I thought, that, I thought your comment was perhaps going to go a different direction. Um, he didn't have the flesh. We do. Right? He did not have sin. So all the, all the, the kind of theological flesh uh, discussion that Paul has in Romans and Galatians, First Peter has, um, none of that's true of Jesus. He did not have the flesh. Yeah, of course, he had a body. I mean, but but that, that kind of sinful perversion of natural appetites, uh, which work in us to lust for things, desire for things that God, God, God says are no, God, God says no to. So he did not have that. So some people draw the conclusion, uh, he must have had it easy compared to us because we have the flesh and he didn't. And my response to that is, number one, keep, keep in mind, the point of this Messiah coming is to live the life of the second Adam. To be human does not entail being sinful. Right? He has to live a human life sinlessly. 
And so he doesn't have to come as a sinful human. He has to come as a human. We are the perverted humans. We're the junkyard version of humans. He's the showroom floor version, right? So he is fully human. So let's not, let, let's not think that uh, somehow he's not living in an authentic human life because he doesn't have the flesh. Oh no, we're living the deficient human life because we have the flesh. Goodness, in our life to come, especially glorified and like Christ and you know, with even a greater humanity than was with the original Adam, we, we will experience fullness of human life then. Okay, so that's one thing. Here's a second thing. Don't confuse flesh with inner desires for things that God may or may not want you to have. Inner desires for things that God may or may, want, may, or may not want you to have are part of our humanity. Christ hungered. Not, he wasn't sinful, right? But he hungered. So, so that temptation, make these stones bread, is real because he was really hungry. 40 days, for goodness sake. The most I've ever fasted, and I've only done it once in my life, when I was a freshman in college. It was the result of the Lord's work in a powerful way in my life at the time, for which I'm deeply grateful. I fasted seven days, water only, seven days, and I could not wait to eat. You know, that next morning, I had tomato juice that just bursted with flavor. You know, it's amazing how much flavor there is when your tongue hasn't tasted anything, you know, for days. It's 40 days. So he's hungry. So, so is there a temptation to go against what God says, not because of the flesh, but because of human desires, human needs. Yeah. So they're in. So I, you know, again, I, I guess this is being taped, and I think this is okay to say. I, I do believe it. It just sounds a little scandalous. Jesus had sexual appetites. Why would you think not? He's a man. He he, he is a genuine man, male human being with sexual appetites. And so, but he, ne- he never gave into them. So he doesn't have the perversion of them that we have because of the flesh, but he's got them. Every bit of it he's got. Do you see? The- so don't, don't mistake flesh with inner longings for things. No, there are inner longings that are just true of our humanity that, that, that have nothing to do with sin. Sin just messes those up. Sin perverts them, but sin doesn't create them in the first place. Okay, third thing. For every bit of temptation that we get that comes from the flesh, Christ would have had that and more in terms of the the power of those temptations, that and more that would have been brought upon him by Satan. Because Satan knew how much was at stake with Jesus and would have tried with everything he had to trip him up. So I, I just don't think we, we can for one minute tolerate, you, you should, should not comfort yourself with, with the notion, I've got it harder than Jesus had. I, I, I think if, if, if we could get into his skin for a minute and feel what he's had, we'd want this one back quickly. Because I, I have a feeling we'd realize, boy, he had it really difficult. Another, another point I made with the, the class the other day is 
He never gave in to temptation, so he always felt the full weight of it every step of the way, all the way to the end. He never gave in. That, that is a phenomenal thing. So all of these reasons compound, I think, to indicate, yes, he was really tempted, he really had it hard, and he really fought it with resources given him in his humanity. So may, may God help us to see that and emulate Christ. Yes, please. Yeah. Yes. Right. Okay. Th- well, it, yeah. What what I said has a bigger framework than I, than I said than I told you. Um, I, I my own view. I'm a, I'm a cessationist on the question of do the miraculous gifts continue? And and my position is no, they don't. However, I'm a qualified cessationist. I qualify almost everything, so I'm, I'm qualified here too. <laughs> So I'm a qualified cessationist in holding that though the gifts do not continue, that any of the functions of those gifts God can use anytime he wants to. Do you see the difference? Any of the functions of those gifts God can use anytime he wants to. And in my judgment, healing is the clearest example because we all agree on this. Namely, that God can, I think we do, God can heal. Uh, and, and, And we pray for that. In fact, we're commanded to pray for that. Call the elders of the church, you know. So we're commanded to pray, and we believe God can heal. But, you know, if you're in your small group and you pray for healing for one of your small group members, and God does it, the next time you meet together, you're probably not going to go around the room and say, okay, fess up, which one of you had the gift? Come on, tell me, who had the gift of healing? No, nobody has to have the gift of healing for God to heal because God can just do it right, if he so chooses. and we, So I think the very same thing is true of all the other so-called miraculous or supernatural gifts. I don't think the gift of tongue continues. I mean, my main support really comes from Ephesians 2.20, that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And those are New Testament prophets. We know that from Ephesians 3. So you have to do with a prophet what you do with apostle, and so they've ended They've ended. Apostles have ended. Prophets have ended. And if prophets have ended, I would argue tongues have ended because tongues are inferior to prophecy in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. So I I don't think the gift has continued, but could God give a a missionary the ability to speak in another language if he so wanted? Of course he could. And I've heard reports that such has happened. Might he give a vision to someone or a dream to someone who doesn't have the gift of a word of knowledge or a gift of prophecy, might he do that? Yes, uh, absolutely. So, so in fact, I, I, I know of cases. In fact, one is in my own life uh, where God gave a dream to a woman in our church that was in j- just e- enormously important for me to know what the will of the Lord was in a particular decision I was making. It was through this dream that she had which if he had given to me, I would have discounted it because it just, it was all the stuff I was thinking, you know. But she had it. She knew nothing about this and it was incredibly specific. And I just knew this, this was God's answer. So, but did she have a, a gift of, of word of knowledge or a gift of prophecy? No. This is the first time she'd ever dreamed in her life that she could remember it. First time. It was amazing. 
So yes, God can do that. And uh, so what, what this, this middle position here does is it keeps us from uh, promoting gifts that I think have ceased in the body of Christ. So we don't promote gifts of prophecy and gifts of tongues and so on. But it also means we're open to those things happening if God so uses them. So we're not closed off the way some cessationists are to everything supernatural. I mean, I read some reform people sometimes and I think it sounds awful deistic. You know, God, God just doesn't do anything in our age, you know? And uh, I just kind of think, wow, don't, don't you think he has the same power he had before? And who are, who are we to tell him he's not gonna do this? So I, I think it can continue in that way, but not through gifts. That's my, my, my kind of quirky view on this. Yeah, he believed they continued, right, yeah. Yeah, and by the way, I think a, an intolerable position is a common position out there. You know what that is? It's common, but it's intolerable in my mind. And that is, yes, I'm a continuationist. The gifts continue. But in our church, we don't want to be divisive. We don't all agree on this. And so we're not going to practice those gifts. Well, you, pastor, are not permitted to overrule the spirit. I'm sorry. But if the spirit has given gifts to the church, then you are obligated to see them developed and used. So that, that is a no-win situation right there. Yes, they continue, but we're not using them. Sorry. Yeah. Other things you want to talk about. I don't know how long you want to go, Chris. Five o'clock, maybe? Yeah, five o'clock. If this is on, we should probably round it off. Maybe one more question. Okay. Anybody? Yes, please. Johnny. Uh huh. The kingdoms. I think I. Let me see if this is uh, at all. I mean, I'm just thinking of an analogy right off the top here, and my analogies I come up at the moment are often really uh, faulty. But anyway, here, here's the analogy. You're, uh, you're sitting at a red light and you are driving, wow. I mean, the hottest thing on wheels there is out there. I mean, you could lay rubber for 100 feet and leave anything in the dust. And there you are sitting at the, at the red light. Up to you comes this uh, Volkswagen bug. And he goes, vroom, vroom, vroom. you know, he's revving that motor and looking over at you. I mean, what the temptation is, is to prove it. Prove it. You're the son of God. Prove it. I think this is it. And uh, so, I mean, it's hard not to prove what you could prove when you can do it. It is hard not to. And I think, I think this is essentially what it is, is, is you use, use your authority, your, your, um, your right as the son and just do this. And his response, notice, is you will not test the Lord your God. It's not that that wouldn't be something that he might do in other circumstances and expect God to bear him up and so on. It's not that, but it, God has not told him to do this. And so he will only do what God tells him to do. So that's, that's what I think. Yes. Right, yes. 
Baha, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, Chris, thank, thank, thank you all for coming. It's really a delight to have you here, and uh, appreciate it very much. Would Would you be willing, Bruce, to pray for us? Most sure. of these folks here are pastors or church leaders. Just pray for them as pastors. Pray for their churches that they would really lean into the Spirit and depend on Him to to do just amazing things on our island and as the gospel yeah, goes amen. forward. Amen. Lord, we do come before you with hearts that acknowledge you are God, we are not. Uh, you, you are uh, infinitely sufficient. You have every good thing within yourself and we are weak, needy, frail, lacking creatures. But Lord, though we lack, we are connected to you who has no lack. Though we are weak, we are connected to you who is strong. Though we are foolish, we are connected to you who is wise. And so, Lord, we just appeal to you to be pleased to manifest the greatness of your glory and power and wisdom through the means of uh, jars of clay, of, of uh, means uh, of, that are humble before you, to see your work uh, prosper and, and continue and grow. Lord, we do pray from what we looked at today that you would help us to be men and women who rely increasingly on what you alone can do in us and through us and, and resist the, the uh, self-centered, prideful temptation to think that we have it in ourselves, that we can do it ourselves. And Lord, as, as the men on this island who are pastor churches, uh, join together in humble hearts, acknowledging you must do this work, Lord God. Oh my, what a great work we, we anticipate to see happen in increasing measure. So Lord, we, we uh, ask you to be pleased to favor these pastors and their churches. Cause them to be beacons of light of the gospel. Uh, cause them to be places where there is increased love of the brethren and cause them to be places where your word is proclaimed with clarity and faithfulness that there may be great growth among the people of God there. And through all this, Lord God, may your spirit be the one who empowers it to bring glory to Christ and advance his kingdom. We pray this with great confidence because we're this side of the cross and the empty tomb. We are this side of Pentecost. The spirit has come. He brings to us the power of Christ. And so we pray this with confidence in the name of the risen and exalted Jesus. Amen.